electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. It's a busy hour. Here's what's ahead. We all know about GameStop, AMC, and Clover lately, but we're digging deeper into the Reddit trades to find the -the under-the-radar place that could be the next ones to pop. Speaking of which, we'll speak with SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Scott just told you we're going to talk about the discussion him and Jim were just having about this whole issue around pay for order flow, what that means for the future of free trading for Robinhood, for Reddit, and so much more. And is it time to retire Fang? One market strategist says the trade is over, but does Mr. Kramer agree? It's all ahead, but we begin with the markets right now. Seema Modi is here with the State of Play. Seema? Hey, Kelly, so much happening in today's market. S&P 500 trying to get to that fresh all-time high. We're looking at the Dow Industrials uh, currently underperforming, down about 53 points as industrials, the sector, underperforms. Take a look at stocks like Caterpillar, John Deere, Honeywell, Martin Marietta, All of these stocks seen as beneficiaries of an infrastructure deal, and they are slipping after President Biden ended infrastructure talks with a group of six Republican senators. There is talks about Democrats using the process of reconciliation. It is worth noting uh, Caterpillar actually raises dividend today by 8%, but that stock is down 1.7%. What is working? Well, you know, I keep an eye on the emerging markets. Brazil, I just want to point out, up again today, seven consecutive session, and it is up around... 6.6% so far this month, handily outperforming the broader emerging market index. Why is Brazil up? Well, it's the economic data. It is starting to improve there. GDP expanding faster than expected in the first quarter. And that weaker dollar story, Kelly, that's also helping stocks in Brazil outperform. That's surprising. Seema, thank you very much. Seema Modi. Well, we can't seem to move on from the meme stocks lately. There's GameStop, there's AMC, there's Clover this week. The Reddit-fueled rally is becoming a market force to be reckoned with. Now even the market pros are watching for the next names that could be headed, so to speak, to the moon. Christina Parts and Evelis is watching them, too. She's here with some under-the-radar meme stocks to watch. Christina? To the moon, right, Kelly? There are other meme Reddit faves that are lurking behind rooms in Discord, Reddit, and FinTwit. But first, what the heck is a meme stock? We've been talking about it a lot, and everybody has a different definition, but usually these are the key points. The fact that there's heavy short interest, higher trading volume with no major news catalysts, and of course, massive encouragement to buy the stocks in online forums. Take, for example, GeoGroup. It manages prisons and correctional facilities and is the most active New York Stock Exchange stock right now. Geo is already halted today because of volatility. So far, Geo is trading well over 24,000 over its 30-day moving average. Uh, sorry, I should say 24,000 over its uh, 30-day moving average. And the short interest is massive, almost at 35% of the float. In comes the short squeeze. We have t- also take a look at sectors that are trading on Wall Street. Bets, you've got electric vehicles, cannabis, and anything to do with gambling gets the most attention. And those social media mentions are helping drive trading volume in pot stocks like Tilray and Sundial Growers. Volume is through the roof. And although QuantumScape is flat to mostly lower, oh, you can see it's climbing a little bit higher just in the past few minutes. It's a Reddit favorite over the past several months. Followers are keeping a close eye on the stock as short interest hits 23% of the float. So to the moon they go. 
Who will catch them if or when they fall, Kelly? That's another great point, Christina. Thank you. Let's bring in a value stock expert now to see what he makes of the Redditor's arguments for some of these high-flying stocks. Do they have a sound case or not? Joining me is Abe Deshpande. He's the chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. Abe, we enjoyed it uh, when you were on recently and gave us what you thought was the intrinsic value, I think, for AMC, which was, let's just say, well below where it was trading. So let's go over a couple of the other names that have been popping lately. For example, what about Wendy's? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a it's a, there's a good case you can make for Wendy's actually having some value. I mean, you know, they have a real business that's been around for a long time, uh, but I, I'm sure no one's actually read the annual report to understand that Wendy's is not actually even a restaurant company. It's a real estate company. They've, it's mostly a franchise operation. Ninety percent of the restaurants are franchised. The big difference between a Wendy's and a AMC you mentioned or Roku or what have you is that uh, most of the value that's kind of priced in is a today value. There's not a lot of potential value that's being priced in. So that's not to say that Wendy's is necessarily cheap. Uh, we own McDonald's in the Centerstone Investors Fund. Uh, same basic scenario, uh, kind of phenomena. It's a real estate uh, business with a long stream of earnings that you can capitalize and rely on. If the business is not going to change drastically the next year or next two years, um, like you see if you read the reports for some of these meme stocks, you'll see over and over again, Massive competition. In the case of Roku, they tell you that they've never made money and they probably will never make money. Right? So that's very different than a Wendy's. Uh, in so in the case of Wendy's, are you saying, look, the valuation has a point. It's just pulling that future growth forward? Yeah, it's, it's, um, there's just the tug of war is always between what you get today and then what kind of potential there is tomorrow, right? And that's the difference between AMC's actual intrinsic value today and what the meme guys think it could be worth with all the potential, you know, X, Y, Z that they could, or GameStop, you could put all these meme, meme stocks in the same kind of boat. Uh, with the Wendy's, you have, it's just that there's a closer link between what it's worth today and what it could be worth tomorrow. Uh, and that, that excitement, um, you know, over a breakfast or what have you, you know, it, it, it probably kind of uh, maybe is a little bit too forward, but, um, you know, in our view, I think Wendy's could be worth 18 bucks. It was, it was there, I think, three months ago. I mean, it, it's not like completely crazy to say that it's, you know, within earshot or within range of its actual value. It's very, very different than than some of the, yeah, around 18 bucks. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's interesting as well to say, okay, the market was already there. You know, this is not new information to the market. So there's a difference in some cases between new information, uh, information that was already known and priced in, and just more people discovering that information, but not understanding that it's already priced in. And then new information, which is, hey, this retail community wants to rally around, raise the equity price, and potentially offer new information to the market on uh, a name like this. I'm not sure Wendy's falls in that camp. So let me ask you about another one, Bed Bath & Beyond. Sometimes people think it's only up because there's interest in BlackBerry and people, you know, just get the takers wrong. But there's also, <laughs> I mean, it's a traditional real estate play. One of these names that's kind of fallen on hard times reopening trade. What's the bed bath case fundamentally? Fundamentally, it's a basket case, a bed bath and basket case. It's been kind of dying for many years now. Like for likes are, 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 are compressing. And, uh, you know, they just kind of like an AMC or some of these other companies, like they have a massive amount of uh, liabilities that people who never read anything will just completely overlook, which is the rent that they owe. It's 800 million a year, roughly. And as the revenues shrink, the, the, uh, the, the rent doesn't change. So, you know, you have this meeting point, unfortunately, which, which is profitability at zero, which is basically where they're at. And so it's kind of a race against time to lower their, um, lower their 
their rent expenses as they shrink. That's a situation where I could, I could, you know, here's again, what's it worth today? What's the potential? So I mean, worth today, maybe 30 bucks or something like that. Uh, but you have to have a great deal of faith that the stocks uh, or the company's fortunes have based here. If it's, it is continuing to be a, uh, a slowly dying business, then I, I don't know what the intrinsic value is. It's very difficult to value mm. a, a dying business. Interesting. So are there, before I, I do know you have, there are a couple of kind of traditional names you like, but are there any of the Reddit plays that you look at and you go, actually, yes, yes, that's a, a company that was mispriced by the market. And I, Abe, would <laughs> kind of belong this name along with the, the rest of the retail community in that one. This is the stupidest stock market environment I've seen in a long, long time. So the answer is no. Hmm. I can go through And I have gone through the entire list of these things that are like in the ARC fund or whatever, which is not to say that I'm not dissing anybody. Like for sure they've done a great job and returns have been great. But, you know, as I go through each and every one of these stocks, I go, oh, just read the annual report. AMC says, you know, they're going to go bankrupt last year. Roku says they'll never make money again. Spotify says they're going to be competing against Amazon and Apple and will probably never. And by the way, even Universal Music is going to be a huge competitor now and will have the balance of power going forward. Um, because, you know, if you, if you go through the work, you'll see how much power Universal with 30% market share, they own the content. Hmm. All of that stuff is going to impact the profitability of these businesses and you know, a lot of that potential people are looking at will just not happen. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, and then and that's worth today. What it could potentially be worth with every, if everything goes on right, you know, you just have to question that. And even slight things going wrong mean that there's a. Yeah, you're uh, you're you know, don't crush the hopes, Abe. <laughs> <laughs> for the retail investors who are involved in a lot of these names. So obviously, you're talking about some of the pros here as well. Air Liquid, uh, which we spoke about last time, Ubisoft, those are some names for people who want to know what you would be looking at as you dig through the financials and read all of these reports. And thank you for joining us, Abe. Today, we appreciate it. Abe Deshpande with Centerstone Investors. We've got a news alert out of the bond pits right now. Ten-year notes up for auction, top of the hour. Rick Santelli has the latest. Yields were under one and a half earlier, Rick. Well, I'll tell you what, Kelly, if you would have asked me before the auction button up, with the rally of the last few days, make this auction go better or worse, I would have said worse, kind of gave away the concession. Boy, was I wrong. We just auctioned off 38 billion tens on a reopening, and I'm giving this auction an A+. plus. The yield, 1.497. Every metric was just solid. If we look at bid to cover at 258, that's the best since July of 20. 65 on indirect, that's the good group we like to pay attention to, those foreigners. That's the best since August of 20. Direct bidders like mutual funds and hedgies, 19.2, the best since December of 2019. But here's the thing. You know, if, if you have a big dinner at your house, Kelly, and all the food is gone and there's no leftovers, that means everybody kind of liked it. Well, the dealers only got the leftovers of 15.7%. That is the lowest since May of 2016, and that really sums it up. They couldn't get enough tens. To me, that's a bit of a capitulation on shorts. Uh, you know, listen, maybe everybody's going to continue to believe the Fed is going to be right and transients the word for inflation. But if it isn't, this could all change quite quickly, but at least for now, they couldn't get enough 10 years. What Back an unusual, remarkable situation. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli, 10-year yield under 1.5%, as he mentioned. Let's get back to the Reddit trade. Those traders are having an impact on sell-side analysts, even. 
as those analysts scramble to change their coverage. In the past week, we've seen them reevaluate their stances on three stocks as a result of the power of the Reddit rebellion. B of A terminating coverage on shares of GameStop, saying non-fundamental factors are still driving GME shares. The same analysts also moved to a no rating on Bed Bath, saying the rapid appreciation in shares is being driven by another surge in interest in trading led by retail investors. They go on to say shares of Triple BY are no longer trading on fundamentals. And today, Stiefel downgrading Wendy's from a buy to a hold after yesterday's 26% rally. They're saying the stock's current valuation, like we were just talking about with Abe, quote, fully reflects the growth we were assuming to reach our target price of $25. A couple of these names taking a breather after their mega rallies. We'll watch for any other analyst changes, but don't expect the streak to walk back these calls anytime soon. Coming up after years of dominating the investing landscape, is it time to retire FANG? One strategist says yes, and what he thinks is going to replace it. Plus, we have an inside look at the largest housing community in the world, built on the premise of net zero greenhouse gas emissions. But it's in California. How does that work? That's ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. There's a lot of love for IBM today. UBS putting the tech stalwart on its list of stocks with pricing power that should enjoy outperformance. It's been a pretty good year for the so-called old tech group, actually. IBM and Cisco both up about 20 percent. Intel up 15 percent. And is their rise also a sign of the demise of the FANG trade? My next guest says yes. Let's bring in David Bonson. He's founder and chief investment officer for the Bonson Group. David, the performance of some of those FANG components looks pretty good this year. What's your beef? Well, I think with the FANG components, it's thinking of it as FANG, as one monolithic entity. The performance has been really good. In Facebook, you're you're up about 25%, but then in Netflix, you're down 10%. Apple is down 5%. Some are trading at 28 times earnings, like Facebook. Then you look at uh, Netflix trading at 70 times earnings. So it's such a disparate group at this point that I don't think it's acting monolithically anymore. David, we had to ask the man who coined the moniker in 2013 if he agreed with you. Here's what Jim Cramer said. People have wanted to give an obituary to these stocks forever. I am probably the only portfolio manager from my actionworks.com who actually wrote obituaries for two years. I covered homicide. I know obituaries. This is no obituary. <laughs> he is not ready to bail on it, David. Can it still work? Can this trade still work? Nine, what, eight years uh, in the running? 
Yeah, the, if anyone thinks that the companies are going away, then that's ridiculous. That's not my thesis. My thesis is that the idea of it being the hottest thing that is driving stock market returns, I definitely believe that period has come to an end. But you have very solid cash flow generating companies. I happen to think they're all overpriced. We're dividend growth people, which leads to the IBM, Cisco, Intel conversation. But the idea that FANG is dead is certainly not our case. The companies itself, sure, sure, sure. And so to add insult to injury in a way, the, let's talk about why these old tech names are so attractive to you. You mentioned that you're a dividend guy. You're looking for that income. Uh, but they have also a decent performance this year because sometimes those dividends are a red flag or they go away. They're undermined by a poorly performing stock. Why is 2021 going to be the year, and maybe you think it's even beyond this year, that this group of stocks will continue to work? Yes. Now, first of all, Kelly, the dividends don't go away for us because that, of course, is our underlying thesis, dividend growth. We have to believe in the sustainability of the dividend and avoid dividend cuts at all costs. But your point is a really good one. A lot of these great dividend names over the years, we all know General Electric and others have, have cut their dividend. It's our job to avoid that. With IBM, with Intel, with Cisco, we have to look to the free cash flow covering the dividend. When companies are paying a dividend out of basically the company credit card, that is not the way you want to go. With these companies, all three have one thing in common. Old mainline businesses that kick off a ton of cash and then catalyst for growth into the future at really low P.E. ratios. The market hasn't bought it. The market hasn't believed in it. We want the market to not believe in it because we're buyers. We like low valuation entry points. Mm -hmm. But now IBM going from 100 to 150, Cisco and Intel have had new life breathed into them. You know, eventually the market does find value. That's what's going on right now. Last question on principle. Are dividend growers, let's say, um, inflation protected? Oh, they're the greatest inflation hedge of all time. There is no inflation if companies with pricing power are not themselves raising their prices. The ability for a good equity, a good company to pass on the impact of inflation to its customers and then the investors to receive that benefit in growing dividends, uh, uh, dividend growth portfolio should see its annual income going up 5 to 10 percent per year. Well, that's higher than 1970s level inflation. So we absolutely believe dividend growth is an inflation hedge, short and long term. All right. Well, I hate to tell you, but we're going to have to call them icky. IBM, Cisco and Intel is David Bonson's new trade for the year. Thank you very, very much, sir, for coming here and making your case. We really appreciate it. Coming up, breaking at the top of the hour, SEC Chair Gary Gensler saying he's recommending rules to ensure fair competition between exchanges and brokers. What does that mean? Well, look to shares of Charles Schwab sinking on the news. We'll speak exclusively with the SEC Chair himself about it all momentarily. And as we head to break, a reminder that June is Pride Month. All month long, CNBC is spotlighting contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and producers. Here is Patrick Manning. I credit a lot of my success to the fact that I am LGBTQ. Once I fully came out and was living truly who I am, I felt a tremendous weight lifted off my shoulders. And I started to notice that that's when I really started to succeed in my career. It also led to a lot of very dear friendships and relationships within the LGBTQ journalism community. And that led me down many paths that I otherwise may not have discovered. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 
3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets. Dow's down 30 points. Other major averages are positive, including the S&P. The Nasdaq up a third of a percent. It's leading the way. In terms of individual movers, we're watching shares of Dish taking a hit today on a downgrade from J.P. Morgan, who's expressing skepticism over their ambitions to build out a network in a market that's costly to enter in the first place. Dish shares are down almost 6 percent. And Brown Foreman taking a dip despite reporting a strong fourth quarter. The Jack Daniels maker beat sales expectations thanks to premium bourbon sales here in the U.S., but it's also seeing significant increases in commodity costs. Familiar villain these days, BFB down about 6%. And tune into Closing Bell for an exclusive interview with the company's CEO, Lawson Whiting, joins at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Now over to Leslie Picker for a CNBC News update. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, here's what's happening at this hour. Last year's inductees to the Baseball Hall of Fame will have to wait a little longer for their induction ceremony. Originally set for July, it will now happen on September 8th. The event is also being moved outdoors. No players were elected to enter the Hall of Fame in this year's voting. Former Volkswagen CEO Martin Winterkorn has agreed to pay $14 million back to the carmaker for his part in that Dieselgate scandal and a failure to address the crisis quickly. In northern Mexico, investigators are still trying to figure out what caused a bus crash that killed at least seven people and injured dozens. The bus was reportedly carrying more than 50 Hyundai factory workers when it rolled over near the U.S. border. And tonight on the news, the latest on the crash and why it might have happened. Tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern. And in Western Canada, a pair of kayakers coming to the rescue of a young moose after it fell into a river. They quickly rigged up a safety rope to make sure they wouldn't get swept downstream. And one of them walked through the river to scoop the moose up. Look, at it's almost like he's uh, skiing or something. It's remarkable. I'm trying to see the moose. He was very, he was so small. Oh, there we go. A little guy. No That's safe yet. at last. Wow. Impressive. Leslie, thank you very much, our Leslie Picker. Coming up just last hour, SEC Chair Gary Gensler announced the SEC will undertake a broad review of the structure of the stock market. Could change the way stocks are priced and traded even. The Chair Gensler will join us for an exclusive interview right after this here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Breaking at the top of the hour, SEC Chair Gary Gensler making headlines announcing he's asked his staff to recommend rules aimed at ensuring fair competition between brokers and exchanges. Now, these moves could have a big impact on trading structure. That means all of the trades that you and me and everyone on Reddit is making. SEC Chair Gary Gensler joins us right now for more on all of this, along with our very own Bob Bassani. Bob? Thanks very much, uh, Kelly. Important thing here, Gary Gensler, thanks very much for joining us. Making a few headlines here, uh, Mr. Gensler, you're saying that the SEC is undertaking a broad review of stock market structure. Now, I know you've said in the past that you are somewhat unhappy with the payment for order flow regime. You've implied there's too much concentration, and you've also implied that investors may not necessarily be getting best execution. Can you demonstrate, or do you think you can demonstrate, that investors may not be getting best execution? best execution? And if so, what are you proposing to do about that? Well, 
Bob, first, uh, good to be with you. And technology changes our markets on, a, on an ever-increasing basis. So what I've really said to staff and my fellow commissioners is we should ensure that our rule sets are updated for 2020s technology. And what do we find in the 2020s is um, there's a provision that you and me, all of us, are to get best execution when we enter a trade into a trading platform and, and the broker gets his best execution. And it doesn't mean better execution, best execution within the rule. And uh, there's this thing called payment border flow. And we've had some cases as recently as the end of last year where there's this inherent conflict where somebody paying for our trading, our order flow, is saying, well, I can give you a little better execution or a lot better execution depending how much I pay you for that order flow. So I think we need to take a close look at that. Not every country allows this payment for order flow. Many uh, major markets around the globe don't. I think the key point you have been making is you'd like to see more trading in the lit markets on exchanges like here at the New York Stock Exchange. Is that the thrust of what you're trying to get at here? I think the thrust is a little broader than that. It's about ensuring that through transparency and competition that we as investors, the individuals, working families, get the, the, the best execution and the best out of their investment platforms and their brokers. So I think transparency and competition helps that. And it is, you know, most of what we do as retail uh, uh if we put an order in, it's not going to uh, the, what you call the lit markets, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ. It's going to some wholesaler buying that uh, order. Let me move on to the meme stops. We've been talking about them for the last several days. They've been making headlines. You said in your recent uh, congressional testimony that you've asked your staff for more information on exactly what happened with Reddit and GameStop and Robinhood a few months ago. And what, if any, regulatory or rule changes need to be change, uh, changed at this point? Can you share with us your thoughts at this point? I know you said you've asked your staff, but what's your thoughts at this point? Have you come to any conclusions about what, if any, regulatory changes need to be made? Look, I'm only in the second month, and I know a few months from now you'll ask me again, uh, be, be back, and you'll say, well, you're in your fifth month. Look, I think that technology has led to greater access and it, it better user experiences. It's easier to trade within the market. But at the same time, we have to watch out for investors. And so these behavioral prompts that are being put on uh, our mobile ops, apps to trade, is that really the best thing? So uh, we're going to take a t close look at what's called gamification. All these little prompts and these, these encouragements to trade. Uh, and uh, how do we protect investors in, the, in this new regime? You know, Jim Cramer this morning, my colleague, was talking about the need for more education, perhaps, from the SEC. Obviously, we're concerned that all of this could blow up in people's faces and people are going to start to wonder, what did people do or what should we have been told to warn us about it? Does the SEC have any role in educating people about the problems that can happen when you get involved with stocks that are way, way beyond or in price areas that are way, way beyond their fundamentals? What role does the SEC play in, in mitigating this or or, or or helping people to understand what's going on. So, uh, Bob, we do have an investor education and investor focus. We've had that, uh, it's at, at the core of our mission. We also have a vibrant examination enforcement 
uh, regime. And, and we look out for investors in terms of making sure and looking for where people are trying to uh, uh, do fraud schemes or, or trying to do pumping up a stock uh, uh, in, in, in ways that are on the wrong side of the line. And that's easier to do when it's a very low price stock. Sometimes it's called penny stocks and the like. And, and through, through uh, uh, bad actors doing bad things. So we're going to do investor education, rigorous enforcement, but also look to see whether we should freshen up our rule set in this area. Chair Gensler, it's Kelly here. And I just want to get two quick questions in uh, before handing this back to Bob. This is fascinating all throughout. So my first quick question is more of an observation that the business model of a lot of trading platforms is pay for order flow. If you take that away, it could mean there's no more free trading, which is currently underpinning the entire kind of Reddit Robinhood phenomenon, if you want to call it that, at a time when Robinhood's about to IPO. Do you have any response to that in terms of will that actually well, first, be in the best interest first, of the public? First, I would say this, Kelly. Don't don't. Uh, I think that's a misperception. It's not free trading. Somebody is paying for your and my order flow. Secondly, they're getting our data. The data is very valuable. So it is zero commission, but not necessarily free. Number two, not every broker does it in the United States. And number three, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, it's banned. Most of Europe, you don't have it. So there are different business models, but it's not, it's not free. Understood. The other question that we're getting a lot from people these days is about naked short selling. It's illegal, but there's insistence that it's happening. Some would acknowledge maybe on a very small scale. Others insist it's a much larger scale. What can you tell us about its commonality in today's trading environment? Well, um, I think that we can bring greater transparency to short selling. And this is one that uh, Bob is going to say, well, you're only in your second month. I'm going to say uh, I've asked the staff to actually serve up recommendations that we can look at. Uh, we have authorities to bring greater transparency in the short selling and related uh, stock borrow area. And I look forward to putting something out to public comment. Uh, Mr. Genzer, let me move on to Bitcoin and, and crypto. There seems to be an awful lot of confusion about who is regulating what here. We know Bitcoin is a commodity regulated by the CFTC. It is, doesn't seem to be clear to a lot of people who is going to regulate all these other coins that are out there, nor is it clear who is going to regulate uh, Bitcoin exchanges, Bitcoin wallets, for example. You seem to be unsure of it yourself. Can you tell us what your conclusion is? Who should be regulating this particular area? And do we need congressional authorization for you as the head of the SEC to say, we're the people who are regulating this? We need some decisions here on this, and, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Here's, here's what I'm pretty confident about. Investors don't have the full protections uh, that they have in the equity markets or in the, in the uh, commodity futures market. So our sister agency, the CFTC, and our agency, the SEC, um, Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies do not have those full protections. It's a speculative asset class, technology neutral. But what I've said to Congress is I think that uh, one of our agencies should have authority to write rules and help protect investors on crypto exchanges. Now, as it relates to those tokens, many of those tokens, many of those tokens do come under the securities law. Uh, the SEC's brought, I think, six to seven dozen 
enforcement actions over the last few years. But of course, there's hundreds of other tokens. I think there's 1,600 tokens that purportedly uh, have a market value of over a million and 70 or 80 over a billion. So uh, we're going to keep uh, trying to protect investors as best we can under the authorities. But I do think crypto exchanges, there's some work to be done there. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about climate change. The uh, SEC is conducting a, a public comment period on climate change, on expanding corporate climate disclosures. Uh, you've also launched the Climate and ESG Enforcement Task Force. I know the House Republicans have really pushed back uh, on you about this, warning that the SEC doesn't really have a mandate to do this uh, and that this is not really material at this point. Um, what is your response? It, does the SEC have the authority to move ahead and ask for more information on on? on climate and climate disclosure. It, 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 you know, it's interesting. This is at the heart of our disclosure regime that Franklin Roosevelt and Congress did in the 1930s, and it's still very much the authority of the SEC. Investors get to decide, uh, but it's based on disclosure from the companies. And each decade, technologies change, just this technology changed in the markets. And investors, trillions of dollars of assets under management are asking for more information related to climate risk disclosure. So I think we, we, we not only have the authority, but we have a, a role to play to help bring clear, consistent, and reliable information so that investors can decide to buy, sell a stock, or vote on a proxy. I want to just return for a moment to the Bitcoin market and the eternal question of a, of a Bitcoin ETF, which is, uh, of course, a, a big interest to Bitcoin investors. You said recently, SEC said recently, and warned uh, about the potential for fraud or manipulation in the underlying Bitcoin market. Now, these are very similar to words that the SEC used in the past to deny Bitcoin ETFs. I think the question that everyone is wondering about is fraud and manipulation, in your opinion, still sufficiently high enough for the SEC to essentially pass on a Bitcoin ETF this year? Bob, I'm not going to get into any one filing, but let me say investors should be aware, I'm saying this in my own voice, that the underlying Bitcoin cash markets, there's not, there's not the robust uh, oversight that you have in the stock markets or in the derivatives markets. Our sister agency oversees Bitcoin futures, but those underlying cash markets do not have those investor protections. Just before we let you go, I just want to ask you about executive stock trading plans. You made a comment this week about it. Uh, you want to overhaul the rules to reduce improper insider trading or what you think is improper insider trading. Is there any evidence that executives are abusing the safe harbor laws and uh, 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 abusing those executive stock plans? We'll build the record. We'll build the economic record and put this out to public comment. But this uh, affirmative defense was put in place 21 years ago. I, I deeply believe that we need to freshen it up. Insiders right now can enter into multiple plans and insiders cancel those plans even when they have material non-public information. I think we could lift the confidence in corporations around this and this is, this is, this is uh, diminishing the confidence that good faith actors uh, want to do. And so we've either, either we have to frankly uh, repeal that 20, to the year 2000 set of affirmative defenses 
or freshen them up, but how they're working right now, I think, are real gaps. Mr. Gensler, thanks very much for joining us. Very much appreciate it. Gary Gensler is the chairman of the SEC. Kelly, back to you. Bob, that was fascinating. Our thanks to the chair as well. You asked uh, really, really wonderful questions, uh, very thought-provoking. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of changes afoot uh, if we take each of those answers and uh, their implications quite seriously. Quick programming note from risks to regulations to ransomware. Power Lunch is dedicating our entire show tomorrow to the crypto craze. We're going to talk to insiders about a whole bunch of different parts of this crypto industry. 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, set your DVRs, skip work, whatever you need to do. Another payment stock goes public. Genetic Research gets a SPAC and tired of TikTok. It's all in rapid fire right after this. All right, let's catch you up on a couple other stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Joining me to break down the headlines today, Michael Santoli, Christina Partzinevelis, and Leslie Picker. Welcome one and all. First up, Marketa. That was today's IPO. The company uh, counting DoorDash, Instacart, and Uber as some of its big customers. In their S1, they note Square was 70% of their revenue last year. Marketa shares are popping about 15, about 14%. Right now, they sold 45.5 million shares, market cap of around 15 billion. They're a CNBC Disruptor 50 company, round number seven on this year's list. Leslie, what does today's IPO tell you? Yeah, it tells you that you get a pretty bullish response to this fintech IPO market that we've been experiencing. Marketa, just the latest example of this. But to your point, more than 70% of its net revenue came from one customer. That's Square. That was in the first quarter of this year. That is a very big bet on the future of Square's business, on the future of e-commerce. And so clearly the market is telling you that they like this idea. And Christina, the pricing seems to be sort of normal, you know, <laughs> decent normal. pop on the open, you know, it kind of, it's not horribly, it's not way up, it's not way down. I mean, this has got to be the kind of thing that, you know, the IPO market likes. Yeah, normal, I guess, how do we define normal? Because you had other fintech companies like Paymentus and uh, Flywire that popped off of their IPOs. But with this company in particular, uh, they did say that they do see incurring net losses in the foreseeable future, so that could be something. I think they can capitalize on the crypto market because they did sign a deal in April with a Canadian firm that they're going to be allowing customers to trade Bitcoin and the fact that everybody's going digital. When was the last time you used cash? So a company like this can benefit from it. I, I, Mike, the other day I needed $5 for my son to get ice cream at preschool, and I was like, I, I, how am I going to get $5? If I were next year, I would have handed you a 5 because I just did it downstairs <laughs> here uh, because I'm one of those guys. But the only one what, what is fascinating is there, there are hedge funds out there and other investors who feel as if just buy anything related to payments right now. Um, they're just competing with cash. They're competing with checks. There's so many different layers. It's almost like saying you're an application software or cloud software. So many different iterations. You're not going to understand where they all sit. And the latest generation is usually the one that has the edge because it's on cleaner software. Mm. So they're not all going to make it. But right now they're buying them and then figuring out who wins later. That's well said. And there's some other companies Marketa's involved with that so we'll keep an eye on that one into the close. Next up, another public uh, listing to tell you about, 23andMe. They're going to do it via SPAC. It'll happen next week pending a shareholder vote today. It'll trade under the ticker me. Richard Branson, uh, Branson's back VGAC announced in February it would be acquiring 23andMe. VGAC got a hit a high on that announcement. It's down, Leslie, about 20% since then, which is a little peculiar. 
Yeah, so this is a microcosm of what we're seeing with the broader SPAC market, the fact that a lot of these companies have gotten a, a pretty significant amount of excitement surrounding that announcement and then have fallen subsequently, uh, trade a lot closer to NAV as they approach their listing day. That's exactly what we are seeing with, with 23andMe uh, and the VG acquisition group here. Mike, what would you add? Uh, just that it's sort of a, a business in transition. You know, Ancestry.com, the competitor, is in private equity hands. They're moving away from just genetic, you know, Ancestry-type uh, kits toward uh, health uh, data. Not really clear how well they're going to be able to capitalize on that. So a relatively mature company to be coming through SPAC at this point. All right. And then the story I really want to talk about today, it's which is worse, <laughs> being you know, subordinate to big corporate or big algo. Okay, just keep that in mind as we read you about this headline in the New York Times. Taylor Lawrence writing that TikTok burnout is real. Young creators are burning out and breaking down. The newfound fame and the pressures of constantly creating and managing fans has gotten to be too much for some of these young stars. And creators have noted that when they complain, the commenters are filled with people telling them, get over it, you're an influencer, Christina. It sounds like the dream job, you know, the hustle of a lifetime, but it turns out TikTok, it is really hard to do well and really hard to figure out what the algorithm wants over time. I guess it sounds like the dream job when you get free stuff sent to you all the time and you're flown in jets and you can hang out with celebrities. But overall, I would never want to, you know, become a TikTok star just because it does require almost all of your day having to cut and edit everything. Hopefully this means that it's pushing a younger generation into creative fields and we're going to have even more epic movies and TV shows in the near future. But uh, with this, we saw this YouTube stars saying that they're burned out Instagram, which is why maybe they removed some of those like buttons. You can't see the number of likes. This is a common occurrence that we do have to take note of going forward, especially when all our children are using these apps. Right. And Leslie, it's interesting because a lot of people have been able to kind of push off from shore in the corporate world and say, I'm I'm on TikTok now. I'm on social. It's not that easy. (laughs) There's trade-offs to everything. And as much as it opens opportunities and new frontiers to be able to earn money and have influence in the economy, it's just as much uh, of stress in many ways that people think that they're walking away from if they leave their day job. Well, you're self-employed. And so you have to, uh, you know, you're basically someone who has to appeal to that hustle every single day. It also speaks to just the crowdedness in this space. It, it was really uh, something that's been lucrative for a few people. Now everybody's caught on. And in order to get your videos seen, uh, you have to work extra hard, continue to create that content. Yeah. And to your point, the algorithm makes that even more important. Yeah, and Mike, I was speaking with someone the other day who's changing jobs from digital media to kind of old school, let's call it, saying they didn't feel like being a slave to Google anymore, that their entire job was basically trying to figure out what Google wants. So again, yeah. you kind of have your choice. You know, we've yeah. all had maybe a boss, but when, when it's Google, when it's TikTok, when it's an impersonal algorithm that you can never sit down and have a cup of coffee with and say, what do you want from me? It makes life that much right. harder. Well, the platforms are insatiable, and what works is constantly evolving because as soon as something does work, it's open to everybody else to recognize that, too. So there's always competition from somebody who can basically hack the algo a little bit better or a little incrementally. And so I get the exhaustion. I think I can say, I see why you're burnt out, but also try to get over it because (laughs) you are, after all, just making videos. So cold, Michael. This is what we're doing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What are we doing now? (laughs) Michael Santoli, Christina Parts and Evelis, and Leslie Pickard, thank you all today. Still ahead, 21,000 homes are being built in a new community out in Valencia, California, where Diana Olick is talking about what makes it so different and special, Diana. 
Yeah, Kelly. So what does a cook stove in sub-Saharan Africa have to do with helping this California community leave no carbon footprint? I will tell you coming up next on The Exchange. Welcome back. A massive carbon neutral housing project is underway in California and developers are making major headway despite all those material and labor shortages. Diana Olick is in Valencia for us with the story. Diana. Kelly, the plan here at Five Point Valencia is for 21,000 homes on 15,000 acres built by big names like Lennar, Toll Brothers, KB Home and TriPoint. There will be some affordable housing and commercial space, and it will be the largest net zero carbon community in the nation. How creative do you have to get to get to net zero? Well, you have to be very creative and you have to challenge yourself and you have to think differently than yesterday. The homes, of course, will have solar and electric vehicle chargers. Each home will have high-performance attics that reduce the need for air conditioning, heating, and ventilation. The neighborhood's pools will be heated through geothermal exchange technology. Recycled wastewater will be used for all irrigation. But all that is not enough to get to net zero, so developers are earning carbon credits in creative ways. A methane capture program at a California dairy farm installing rooftop solar in disadvantaged neighborhoods in L.A. County. And Five Point acquired the state's 170-acre Pine Creek Forest, adding a permanent conservation easement. It's even replacing traditional three-rock cook stoves in sub-Saharan Africa with clean-burning stoves and saving California's endangered spine flower by carving out preserves for it at the development. Now, there's already been a lot of demand here from millennials because while their baby boomer parents like to brag about the McMansions, they like to brag about their environmental awareness. Kelly? Diana, this was fabulous. This is exactly why we wanted to have you. Because what you just said, that by trying to go net zero in one California community, they're changing stoves in Africa. They bought a forest. They're putting solar panels in L.A. I mean, it's, a, it's almost... It challenges the, you know, the, your sense of reality. But, it, it, you know, if this is the world that people want to achieve by making all these changes, if you can incentivize a private developer to do so in order to label his thing net zero, maybe it is a win-win. Yeah, it's actually a real blueprint for others as well. And because there are so many companies that want to get into ESG investing, they're seeing a lot of capital pouring into that. If they can see a development like this, as vast as this one is, you know you're going to get even more capital coming into these because, again, people want to invest in these environmental projects. Kelly? Fascinating. And I know that, of course, labor material shortage throw a wrench in the works on top of everything else. But that was uh, so interesting. Diana, thanks so much. Diana Olick out in Valencia today. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.